I know that many of you were praying yesterday while Calvary Presbytery was meeting. Just a quick report that you should hear. Our intern, Mark Kuo, passed all of his exams yesterday. He is uh, now officially an ordinand of Calvary Presbytery. His ordination service will be here in a couple of months. And what made this more spectacular was he was perfect in all his answers and in either a second or third language. So we are rejoicing with Mark and Jane. And as soon as his support is raised, that means we will be sending him back to Taiwan to celebrate and rejoice with the Kuo family today. At a crucial period in his public ministry, when Jesus was being followed by, as our context says in Matthew 13, verse 2, the multitudes, meaning thousands, perhaps even tens of thousands. Our Lord Jesus takes a seat in a boat at the water's edge of the Sea of Galilee near the city of Capernaum. And while he sits, the crowds stand as he speaks a series of parables. Afterwards, when asked by his inner circle, Why do you teach in parables? Jesus responds that parables are designed to reveal the truth to some and hide the truth from others. And what we're going to see today is this parable is a profound tool for discernment, real spiritual discernment, even discerning the eternal destiny of an individual. It will teach you who is false and who is the genuine article. In 1999, only 19 years late, I was buying Sandy an engagement ring in the Meadows Mall in Las Vegas. And I don't know if you've had these sort of encounters, but uh, in my life I've had a handful of encounters with people who were so incredibly fascinating. I wanted this encounter to go on for hours. But I went to pick up the ring that was supposed to be ready that day at the jeweler at the Meadows Mall, and the jeweler was still working on the setting. And so being a, a total neophyte concerning jewelry, I began to ask questions. And this jeweler spoke to me as he was finishing the setting. And he said, the first thing you need to know if you're going to understand jewelry, especially a diamond, you need to understand the four C's. He said, cut, clarity, color, and carrot. He explained what made a diamond worth anything. He knew value. This was his business, and he was really good at it. And he had discernment. He actually said, here, put this eyepiece in and look at that diamond. What do you see? I said, sparkles? I don't know. And he said, well, look at this one. Don't you see it? More sparkles. Well, this man had discernment. He could distinguish one diamond from another. He could tell the difference between the spurious and the genuine. And he could spot flaws and imperfections not noticeable to most people. And so I said, what is the most important thing that a jeweler has to know? And he quickly said, you have to be able to tell the difference between the false and the true. You have to be discerning. Well, spiritual discernment is the Christian's trade, just like diamond discernment was this jeweler's trade. Now, when it comes to God's truth, you would think that every believer would want to be as discerning as possible, right? But it's an odd reality that many people who are careful and explicit and exact in every department of their lives are content when it comes to spiritual and eternal realities to hold on to vague uncertainties. 
I know engineers who must be precise about all manner of details on their job who can't make the simplest distinctions in the Christian life. Discernment means investigating, making necessary distinctions between ideas, people. Discernment, which is the process of making distinctions, is a godly, Christ-like exercise. Jesus himself discriminates and makes distinctions. On the last day, Jesus will distinguish between the sheep and the goats. Utilizing God's holy and impartial standard of justice, he will send the goats who are on his left off to perdition. And on that day, he will not collapse into indiscriminate sentimentality. He will make distinctions. The sheep will go to the right, the goats to the left. Today in our text, and I hope you have your Bible open to Matthew 13, for you will certainly need it. Today in our text, Jesus is going to teach you how to make right distinctions between the false and the true, the lost and the saved, the genuine and the spurious. Let's seek the help of the Holy Spirit now to understand this word. Our Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit now to come and instruct us, to convict us, to press the word deep into our souls. We ask that the evil one might not snatch away the good seed from our hearts, Keep us from drowsiness, distraction, rebellion to the word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to review the context of this parable with you. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at all except one of the models for how men hear the preaching of the word. I've said this repeatedly. Maybe I'll convince you today this is the case. Jesus says, every time the word is preached, there are four different responses happening among the hearers. And so the first one Jesus talks about in verse 19 of our text is what we've called the wayside hearer, the hard-hearted hearer who's thoughtless. Yes, he hears the word, but he doesn't understand it. It makes no sense to him. He sees no authority in the word, no applicability to him, and he has no desire to submit to it. That's the first. The second type of hearer. Jesus calls the rocky ground here. You see him in verse 20 and 21. This is the person who hears him. He responds immediately. But later, maybe three months or three years, he withers under the heat of temptation and persecution on account of the word. Now let me tell you what modern evangelicalism has done with this second type of here. They have codified that this person is converted. This is the person who walked an aisle in 1972 and signed a card and was baptized and is still carried on the role of the church as though he were walking with Christ. But there's no continuance with Christ. There's no fruit born. Jesus talks about a third type of hearer. The thorny ground hearer. You can see him in verse 22. This person hears and once again has an immediate joyful response, but he has no extensive or intensive repentance. He doesn't root out, pull up, tear down those deep-rooted sins of lust and pride and unbelief and gratification of the flesh. And so soon enough, the word is choked out and they forget about Jesus. Now remember, every time the word is preached, you have these three responses. Even Jesus had these three responses of unbelief. 
For example, with wayside hearers, in John's Gospel, chapter 8, Jesus was preaching to a large crowd, and he promised his hearers eternal freedom if they clung to his word. His hearers responded like wayside hearers do. We are Abraham's descendants, and we've never been in bondage to anyone. They didn't want to hear it. Second occasion in John chapter 6, Jesus had rocky ground hearers. There were huge crowds of thousands following him at that time until he began to preach doctrines they didn't like, such as election, and they were offended. And we're told in John 6, verse 66, that on that day, many showed that they were rocky ground hearers because they went back and walked with him no more. And there were thirdly, the thorny ground hearers. Think of Judas. What else can we say of Judas except he was a thorny ground here? This is the one who made an astounding start. He walked with Jesus for three years. He ministered. He even cast out demons. But finally, after three years, his sin of worldly covetousness choked out the word. Now let me remind you what the agricultural picture is. Look up to verses 1 through 9, and there Jesus tells the story under the guise of a simple agricultural model. This fourth type of soil that we'll see this morning is the simplest of all the soils portrayed in this parable. It is simply what you expect whenever you plant a seed in a garden or sow seed in a field. The sower has, first of all, cast seed under the hard path where it rapidly gets scooped up by the birds. Then he also casts soil under the rocky soil. That soil that has a layer of rock just beneath the surface. This seed sends up a stalk. But when the stalk comes up, the sun bakes this stalk quickly and it dies. He's also cast seeds among a thorn bush hidden just beneath the surface. As the thorns grow up, they strangle the small plant before it can produce any fruit. But now... The sower casts seed onto the ground that's prepared. It's been well plowed. It's soft. It's deep. And as the seed begins to germinate, it sends down deep roots. Then it begins to, out of those deep roots, send up a stalk. And soon fruit appears on the stalk. And not just a little bit of fruit, but abundant fruit. On some plants, there's a a 30-fold crop. On others, there's a 60-fold crop. And on still others, there's a 100-fold crop return on the seed. That's the agricultural model. Every one of Jesus' hearers, every one of these multitudes knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. They'd seen it, they'd done it. How do we interpret the figure of speech? Jesus interprets it for us in verses 18 and following, which is what makes this one of the 40 parables so important, because here Jesus teaches us how to interpret the other 39 parables. He doesn't do that with any of the others. But over the last few weeks, this parable has been opened to us and we've seen the riches of it. First of all, we've seen the basic elements. They're alliterated. Anyone can remember them. They all start with S. First of all, there's the seed, which is the word of God. There's sowing, which is the preaching and proclamation of the word. There's the sower, the one who preaches the word. And finally, there's The soil, the only thing that changes ever in these four cases, soil represents the hearts of men. We saw what the hard ground hearer was. He is that person who's a hearer, but a disinterested one. Heaven and hell, death and judgment mean nothing to him. 
Satan comes and snatches the word away before he gets to the coffee pot after the service. He produces no fruit. He benefits no one. We saw the rocky soil here, the second type. He makes a quick start, but as soon as the demands of the gospel become apparent and affliction and trial and persecution comes, he dies on the vine. He's only temporary. He doesn't persevere, and Jesus makes it clear. He produces no fruit. The third type of hearer, the thorny ground here. He makes a good start also, but soon the world and its cares and its riches beckon to him, and he tries to hang on to Christ and the world for a while, but then he lets go of Jesus, and he's choked out by worldliness. He produces no fruit. Now we have the good ground here. Look at what is said of him in verse 23 of our text. He hears the word. So he's a hearer, just like the other three. But then we're told something profound. Look at Matthew 13, verse 23. He understands the word. In other words, he, he grasps the proper meaning of the text. He responds properly to the word. Mark chapter 4, the parallel says... He accepts the word. He doesn't fight against it. And then we are told in all of the parallels that he bears fruit in varying degrees with patience and continuance. Now I want to spend some time talking about the implications of this word, the fourth type of here. First of all, make a few observations and assertions. First of all, hear me carefully. The only proof, and this is not a hyperbole, it's not an overstatement, it's a factual statement. The only proof that anyone has savingly responded to the preaching of the gospel is perseverance in fruit bearing. The only proof that anyone has savingly responded to the preaching of the gospel is perseverance in fruit bearing. The thing that is completely unique about this fourth type of soil is it brings forth fruit, we are told by the parallels, with continuance. You see, the teaching of Jesus is it's either the fruit or the fire. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 in his most famous sermon in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said this, Every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree always bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. By their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Jesus continues, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many, many, a lot of folks... A lot of people who have been hearers will say to me in that day, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name? Haven't we cast out demons in your name? Haven't we done wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus' assertion is every tree, regardless of profession, 
that doesn't bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's why in the brief New Testament book of Jude, as deceivers and ungodly men are being spoken of, they're described in Jude 12 as trees without fruit. As I've been opening up this parable and attempting to preach it, several people have asked me, Carl, what, is, what specifically is fruit? Can you define it? Yeah. The first fruits of a saving relationship with Christ are repentance and faith. Repentance and faith are not the act of a moment. They're the acquisition of attitudes which bear fruit for a lifetime. To evaluate your repentance and faith, don't look back to some emotional touching moment when the lights were dimmed and Just As I Am was playing in 1988. The rocky ground here and thorny ground here can do that. No. Let me ask you today. Today, are you repenting and believing the scriptures today? Are you sorrowing more and more over sins of heart and attitude and tongue? And are you clinging to Christ more tightly today? Don't look back for a sentimental memory. Tell me today, is there a living, vital demonstration of repentance and faith? Repentance that is sincere is perpetual. Faith wherever genuine is continuous. Now let me tell you what fruit isn't. It's not respectability. It's not to be confused with good habits which a person forms in their childhood, such as holding doors and saying yes, sir, and cleaning your rooms. These are just decency and civility, not supernatural power. But here's what fruit is. Fruit is evidence. That's why Jesus repeatedly says, you'll know them by their fruits. It's evidence of God's progressive, supernatural, sanctifying work. Another way that we could describe fruit is, fruit is a description of Christ. The Holy Spirit's work in the heart of the believer is to conform you to Christ. Perfect goodness, perfect righteousness, perfect truth. Fruit is conformity to Jesus' character. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, whom he did foreknow, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Fruit is specific holy character. There are communicable attributes of God that are carefully, systematically transferred to the believer by the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So Paul can name nine character traits that every believer... Every regenerate person has in increasing proportion. Paul names them love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Ephesians 5, Paul adds the fruit is righteousness and truth. You know what fruit does? It always grows. Second Peter in chapter 1 talks about the believer that he not only has these truths, these fruits, but they are abounding. And fruit draws the antithesis carefully between the unfruitful works of darkness and the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit, too, gives glory to God. Through the taking on of these holy traits, God receives praise. That's why Jesus said in John 15 in the Upper Room Discourse, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Fruit brings glory to God. No tree, no fruitful plant can hide their identity for long. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7 discussing this issue of fruit? 
he first of all denies the negative. What trees won't produce? Jesus said, a good tree, meaning a regenerate person, cannot bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree bear good fruit. It's a matter of settled horticultural agreement that a good tree is not going to produce sickly, unhealthy, bitter fruit. It's equally agreed upon that a diseased tree is not going to produce healthy fruit. And then Jesus, in the same Sermon on the Mount, affirms the positive. What trees will always produce? And Jesus says, every good tree bears good fruit. Every bad tree produces bad fruit. Jesus is stressing that the fruit of the tree will be in keeping with the nature of the tree. If I ask you today to accompany me to a, a peach orchard and said to you, we're going to go identify trees. And you would say, uh, Carl, do I need to bring a shovel so we can dig them up and examine the, the roots? I would say, no need. Do I need to bring an axe with me so we can chip off some of the bark and examine it? No need. Just come along with me. All you need are your eyes. All you need to do is look at the outermost branches of the tree and say, those are peaches. This must be a peach tree. No digging required, no complex analysis needed. A simple examination is all. One is evident to anybody without any special training. And you could just reach up and take that fruit off the tree and say, well, it sure smells like a peach. Let me take a bite. Sure tastes like a peach. Carl, this seems to be empirical. You also can look at a tree that's wasting away in the same orchard and say, the fruit is discolored. It smells bad. It's shaped funny. And all you have to do is just look for about two seconds and say, bad fruit. If you want to know what kind of tree it is, just look at the fruit. Even if you don't know a lot about horticulture, you understand the fundamental assertion that Jesus is making. He's making a powerful assertion about us. Namely, the fruit of our actions and words demonstrate beyond dispute what is in your heart. The test is not profession. It's fruit. Jesus says in the same Sermon on the Mount that there are plenty of people. In fact, he uses this quantitative word, many, many, some here today. Many who at the last day will say, uh, Lord. And they'll say they're converted and gifted. They'll say this up until the last judgment when Jesus corrects them and dismisses them. Profession is not the acid test. It's evident fruit. A second observation to make about this parable and this fourth type of hearing. The hearing of the word, therefore, the right hearing of the word is a life and death matter. It often frightens me and grieves me to think of how casually and ill-preparedly many come to hear the word. The word preached, it alone, the seed sown, the word preached, is what will produce fruit. If the word isn't heard and understood, there will be no fruit. That's why Jesus closes the sermon with his exhortation, take heed how you hear. Knowing this, this should, there should be a massive impact on how you come to this place every Sunday morning and Sunday evening. Not ill-prepared, but purposing to receive. 
we usually give more preparation and forethought to going to a movie than we do to coming and sitting under the life-giving word. Not coming here tired because you've been up late on Saturday night. Parents, far too often I see having a 9, 10, 11-year-old sitting on your shoulder and you're gently stroking them to sleep. Wake them up. Plead with them to hear the word and not sleep through it. And then for adults themselves, not hearing with wandering thoughts. The Puritan Richard Steele wrote a marvelous treatise in the 1600s entitled, A Remedy for Wandering Thoughts in Worship. You should get a copy. I would highly recommend it. The only thing more I'll say about this point is, the ground which bears fruit is well-prepared soil. And so if you're going to hear the word rightly, to receive the word rightly, to bear fruit, prepare your heart to receive the good seed as you come. A third observation about this text. Only a direct and supernatural work of God can produce a saving relationship to God. In other words, good soil does not make itself good. To be good soil in the first place, the ground had to be plowed and prepared. It wasn't always good. Indeed, it may have been hard like the path or choked with weeds. It had to be prepared to receive the seed. That is the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. This good soil was broken up and made soft, not compacted like the path. It was made deep and fertile, not like the rocky soil. It was cleared and weeded, not like the thorny ground. This human heart that's been plowed by the work of the Spirit of God is not hard and unresponsive. Such a person has an ear to hear and he listens. He hangs on every word that's preached. That's not an innate capacity. We don't come out of the womb that way. That is a work of God's sovereign mercy. It's not said of the other three types of hearers that they understood the word. So does that mean the reason you're under, the reason you're saved today is because you're just a little smarter than everyone else and you understand things that other people don't? Absolutely not. You don't have any more mental ability to understand and receive than anyone else. No lost man has the ability to perceive and understand the truth of the word. Well, if that's the case, how did I understand it in the first place? The kindness, the mercy of the blessed Holy Spirit who does a direct and supernatural work of making the word come alive. Don't be proud today. If you have understanding of the word, don't be lifted up in your own eyes. It's only because God has graciously opened blind eyes and deaf ears. You should fall on your knees in gratitude and worship the God of grace. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Salvation and fruit bearing are the gracious work of God. A fourth observation. And now I'm really speaking of discernment. I would ask the point, do you recognize the difference between no fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold? Jesus speaks of this as though it's a very common thing. Jesus takes us from the beginning of faith to the end of life lived for Christ. The point is, with the good ground here, there's always a harvest. He doesn't tell us why some believers have more productive Christian lives than others. His purpose certainly is not to invite comparisons or jealousy. His purpose is rather to describe simply and accurately and without prejudice that some Christians 
have experiences of more fruitfulness. All believers are fruit-bearing in great measure. But how some have more. I sit down a few weeks ago and I thought, have I ever met a hundredfold Christian? I can think of a few. My mom. Since I've been here, John George, Boyd Green, Rick Creech, all with the Lord. I have other Christian friends who grow at a slower pace, but they grow. They bear fruit. Their trajectory is towards being more Christ-like. A fifth observation about this parable. And I want you to listen very carefully with some of you who've been playing games with this concept of profession versus fruit. Be honest as you apply this parable close to home. There are some of you in this room who have spouses, parents, children, friends who have no visible fruit of a work of sovereign grace. And perhaps you've been excusing your lack of sharing the gospel with them or even praying for them by saying, Uncle Bob is all right. He made a profession of faith 35 years ago. He doesn't seem like a believer, but God knows his heart. When you know good and well that he's a rocky ground here, the dead stalk of his temporary profession of faith is lying in the dirt now. And at this point, some folks will stuff their fingers in their ears and say, I'll go on believing what I want to be true. My friend, if you won't hear me, at least be honest with God and hear his word. Here's what he says. By their fruit, you shall know them. It's interesting that Jesus attributes profound cognitive abilities to the believer. Listen to what he says. By their fruit, you shall know them. Not you can make an educated guess, but he says, with cognitive certainty. He says that the one who's entered the narrow gate and is walking the narrow way, they have discernment. They're like my jeweler friend at the mall in Las Vegas. Where does this discernment come from? You have the indwelling Holy Spirit who's been promised to you to guide you into all truth. You have the word which contains truth. You are equipped to discern. And the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5, this discernment grows with use. Stop playing games. Begin to plead today with Almighty God to save them. To save them thoroughly. To produce an abundant, visible fruit harvest. And then you go. Go with them pleading to repent and believe and bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. A sixth observation about this parable. Before you examine the fruits or lack thereof of anyone else, examine your own heart. Have you seen yourself in this parable? You had to since you're a hearer and these are your only options. Look in the mirror of the parable. Which are you? Can the words of Psalm 1 be said of you? Listen to these glorious words. The believer will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. 
while this focus on self-examination because God's word repeatedly urges us to engage in it. 2 Peter 1, after a clear description of fruit, 2 Peter 1 commands, be more diligent. Be more diligent to make your calling and election sure. If you see yourself in the mirror of the word this morning and say, Carl, I'm a, I'm a wayside hearer, hard-hearted, unready to hear the word and typically refusing the entrance of the word. Let me tell you how to pray in just a moment. Oh, Lord, soften my heart. My heart is hard. It's like that beaten down hard path. Cause me to be receptive to your word. If you're a rocky soil here, shallow, superficial, a faith ready to collapse at the first sign of trouble, in just a moment pray, Oh Lord, dig deeply into my soul and plant your word where it will never be uprooted. If you're a thorny ground here, busy, preoccupied with the world and its concerns, in just a moment now pray, Oh Lord, pull up the weeds by their roots. Enable me to repent of my worldliness and be single-mindedly a follower of Christ. My friend, remember, by their fruit, you will know them. Let's pray. Oh, sovereign Lord, you know our hearts. We can't play games with you. Give us honesty to be diligent, to make our calling and election sure. By the Holy Spirit, now deal powerfully with any who may be deceived. Let them see their barrenness and fruitlessness and then draw them to yourself. Give us an abundant harvest of fruit, hearts broken over sin, godly character abounding. Only you, by the supernatural work of your spirit, can produce it. At the same time, give us grace to be humble, knowing that all fruit, any progress in sanctification, is a work of your indwelling Holy Spirit and is solely by grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.